I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric. Proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast. Throughout the history of motor racing, the drivers have always been the stars, the heroes who make the headlines. But we all know their performance depends on some brilliant engineers and designers. In these podcasts, supported by Scalextric, we aim to explore what it takes to handle the greatest racing drivers with some of the sport's most talented engineers. Joining us today is Sir Patrick Head, the man behind the cars from Williams Grand Prix Engineering, that won nine constructors' championships and seven drivers' championships, winning over a hundred races in the process. And this is uh, Patrick's second appearance on our motorsport podcasts, so he's back by popular demand. Welcome, Patrick, and thank you very much for giving us this time. Uh, well, hello, Rob, and uh, it's a surprise. I, I thought I'd been forgotten by the motor racing world, which uh, was no problem for me. But anyway, good to see you again. No, definitely not forgotten. Um, I'm going to take you out of your happy retirement and ask you to go back to 1993. Um, and I put it to you that the, the Williams was arguably the most technically sophisticated Formula One car that Williams ever built? Or would you say that today's cars are in a different way even more sophisticated? Well, I'd have to say, Rob, that I don't really know too much about today's cars, really. The rules are very different. And uh, as has been in the news recently, the weight of the cars is, is enormous, like they're 200 kilograms heavier than the cars we were running way back in 1993. But certainly the 93 car was very sophisticated. And I think at the end of that year, uh, yes, it was the end of that year, 93, we had a, a test down at Ricard where um, by taking the seat out and... Uh, um, making a bit more room in the cockpit, I was able to get in and drive it. I think Adrian drove it as well, and Bernard Dudo drove it. So um, uh, it was interesting experience. Yeah. Tell me though, did, did driving that car did, did it give you? Was it at all helpful in any way? At all insightful for you to be able to drive what you designed and built? No, I wouldn't say so because, you know, I was a good 10 seconds off a serious lap time and I don't think I could tell much about the car um, with that. It was, um, the engine was remarkably tractable, obviously very powerful, but um, uh, not quite like driving a road car engine, but it, it wasn't like driving a Cosworth DFE, you know, where everything came in with a bang. It was 
very full mid-range, uh, very drivable engine. Okay. Um, can you talk me through that car uh, a bit? Uh, I mean, we uh, you had traction and launch control, active suspension, a fully automatic gearbox, ABS. Can you talk me through a little bit about the process of, of creating uh, what, what was a remarkable racing car? Well, I think in the late 80s, when uh, McLaren were dominant uh, with Ayrton Senna and Alan Prost, we realized that in order to get back at them, we would have to do something fairly special. So we we set up a number of different programs uh, on the subjects you named, um, bringing them along together, and when they were ready, brought them into the car. So there's no doubt about it, the 93 car was very sophisticated. It still took two very good drivers, I think Alan Prost and Damon Hill, to uh, get the best out of it, but it was certainly a very sophisticated car. I mean, as an engineer, it must have been um, a stimulating time for you because um, with all these different systems in in one, you know, fairly small light car, that that was that was that was some you know good engineering in there, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, I think so. And one's got to remember that we were, I mean. I suppose we were probably between 250 and 300 people by that time, but nothing like the teams that grew up later on with six, seven, eight hundred. I think in a few cases, even a thousand people in the teams. We were a relatively small um, group of people, and uh, but then sometimes, um, you know, a small group of people, you got very direct communication links, word of mouth very direct um sometimes they can be very efficient and i would say that it was probably one of the times at which at which williams was most effective and most efficient is it right that um you had a a, a form of push to pass technology as the americans call it um which was a system that lowered the rear of the car is is that right or not and did you use that it wasn't it wasn't a push to pass i mean they uh, a proportion of the downforce on the car was developed underneath. Uh, it was a flat bottom rule, but then we had a diffuser at the rear, uh, and that acted to accelerate the air under the flat bottom, which produced lower pressures. Um, but if we lowered the back of the car, it stalled the diffuser, um, and that reduced the drag of the car and I think gave us about eight miles an hour higher, so we could do it along the straights. Um, yeah, it wasn't really a push to pass. It could be operated when the driver chose, but it was definitely a button that he pushed that he had to hold down, and that, uh, as I say, lowered the back by about hmm. 15, 20 mil and stalled the diffuser. That's quite a significant speed increase, though, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was enough to, uh, as you say, help overtake or, you know, reduce lap times by 
you know, two or three tenths of a second a lap, depending on the length of the straight of the of the track or the straights. How, how does a, how does an idea like that come up, Patrick? Um, in in your group of engineers working on this on the FW fifteen C, you've got it all wrong, Rob. It all came out of my head. Ah, right, good. I yes. joke. I joke. We had a very good team of people. Very direct uh, interchange. We were not very bureaucratic, um, and there was a lot of ideas coming out. Yeah. Okay. Um, can I ask you what was it like uh, for you working with Adrian Newey? Um, was that a proper partnership bet between the two of you? Because it, here we've got you know two very clever minds working towards one goal. Adrian is and has obviously been since is a, a very competitive and and clever chap but um uh the sort of response certainly Adrian dealt with all of the outer surfaces of the car all of the car but all of the engineering transmission uprights hubs all the mechanical um bits were all dealt with by sort of other people, really. Um, but Adrian certainly uh, dictated the all, all the surfaces, the structure of those he didn't really deal with, but certainly the geometry of the surfaces that acted to generate downforce and, and in effect, create drag. I mean, did you for at the time we're talking 1993, some some time ago. At the time, did you foresee just how crucial aerodynamics was to be in the in the uh, success of of a Formula One racing car? Because nowadays it it appears that it's it it is so much. Uh, I think it was pretty clear by then, and um, I think. Um, <clears throat> Forgive me if I get some dates wrong, but I think Adrian, as you know, was working for Leighton House mm. and Mr. Akagi that financed the team brought in uh, an accountant who knew absolutely zero about Formula One, who proceeded to sack Adrian immediately after the Mexican Grand Prix. Um, and he was immediately sacked, like like placed at home, uh, with with no uh, restriction on him being employed elsewhere. Um, and I think at the next Grand Prix was the French Grand Prix at Ricard. And had it not been for a small fuel system problem, uh, Leighton House would have won that race. Uh, it didn't deal with the bumps of Mexico very well. But on a smooth circuit like Ricard, it was demon. Uh, and you didn't have to be particularly bright to know that Adrian knew quite a lot about aerodynamics. So um, and at that time, partly because we didn't we were using a wind tunnel that was not really up to it. And partly because the people we had looking after the aerodynamics were not very experienced. Uh, it was very clear that we were not uh, that strong on the aerodynamic side. So it seemed pretty obvious to me when Adrian was sat, stepped down. So I gave him a call and he came over. Well, I think I went and saw him wherever it was. We met, must have met in a hotel or something. And um, he came to work for Williams as chief aerodynamicist. 
Um, but within a week, uh, it was fairly obvious to me that he needed um, greater authority about the layout of the car. So I, I, I didn't really have a title at that time, but we, so we put him in the position of um, chief designer. And I think I bumped myself up to something technical director or something important. But it was important that the group of people in the design office accepted that Adrian, you know, that if he wanted something, they had to take some notice. So um, that change was done within a week of, of starting, I think. So we worked well to get together for a, a few years um, and probably until uh, maybe the end of that year. Yep. You mentioned um, at the beginning the, uh, the contribution that the drivers made to this um, very sophisticated car. And I, I want to ask you about working with Alain Prost um, because partly because Williams had been racing against Alain Prost for some time. And now here he is with Williams. Um, can, you, can you give us some insight in, into working with this man? Uh, he was with us for one year, Rob. And uh, obviously, I got to know him a bit. But I was sort of overall on the whole team, but also running most of the factory back at base, not just on the design side, although obviously Adrian uh, had a, you know, large responsibilities, but also uh, on the manufacturing side. And um, David Brown uh, was Alan Prost's race engineer. David Brown had been for, with Williams for quite some time. And uh, they used to go away at races almost into a corner, not out of sight, but almost into a corner. Alan was meticulous about the setup on his car. Uh, and as you probably know, he used to bite his nails to a rather yes. uncomfortable thing because he was anguished. Every decision about the setup on the car was an anguished decision. Um, and in fact, the active ride car was quite a challenge for, for Alan. Alan was a superb and very smooth driver, but he understood springs, anti-roll bars, uh, the, the conventional car he understood very well. And our active ride car was a little bit unusual because it came out of a system that we adopted from automotive products. Um, which, when it came to us, was a sort of mechanically controlled system, and we changed it to be an electronically controlled system and, uh, in effect, software. And in the cockpit, there were a number of knobs where you could change the attitude of the car, you could change ride heights, you could change different things, and certain things you couldn't change. I mean, the the relative roll stiffness between front and rear, unlike a conventional car where you could change a, an anti-roll bar, um, you couldn't change because that was depended on the relative diameters of different cylinder hydraulic cylinders on the car. But if you wanted to change the balance, you change the attitude of the car, like an aeroplane, you 
You, if you wanted less understeer, you made it more nose down, tail up. Um, it was quite a challenge for Alain, I think, adopting from a car, a type of car that he fully understood to a type of car that was hard enough for the engineers to understand, let alone uh, a driver coming in. So, uh, uh, but he and David Brown used to spend hours anguishing over setup. It was it was really much easier with Damon Hill, but um, but uh, David Brown used to uh, deal pretty much with Alan. But he was very good to deal with. If anybody looked at the races in the year for various reasons that I don't really remember the detail of. We made a bit of a mess of the first few races in the year. Mm. And then uh, sort of Alan put together like five or six races in a row where he won and sort of built up the points that won him the championship, really. You had incredible, um, uh, in, in Formula One terms, you had amazing reliability with that engine, didn't you? The engine was very good, um, excellent uh, V10 Renault engine, and it was very reliable. And obviously in 1991, we had run the FW14, and 92 was the first active ride mm. that we raced, which was the FW14B. The FW15 was due to come in in 1992, but because the 14B was so strong in itself, we held back the 15. The 15 was really a, a tidied up version. The 14B was um, was the 14 with the active ride hung on it. So for the people that remember those things, there were the two bulges at the front on it, which sort of went round the hydraulic cylinders. And on the 15, they were tucked away inside. So it was a tidied up version. It was difficult to say whether the 15 was much faster than the 14B. It probably was a little bit, but it was very much a tidied up version of the 14B. Um, the reliability, as you say, was very strong, but we were running what really was the 14B in 1991. And we actually took one of those cars to the last Grand Prix of the year in Australia uh, thinking that we might race it. In fact, we didn't race it, not for any particular reason, but we felt we didn't really need to race it. Uh, but I was certainly very concerned, and I, not not on my own, about being too clever by half, because the 14 was pretty strong itself in 1992, and we probably could have massaged it a bit, or with the 15, we probably could have won the championship with a conventional car. Uh, so I was a bit worried about being too clever by half, but we did a lot of testing over the winter and made the decision to run active. Uh, this was between 91 and 92 uh, to run active in 92. That's interesting because I imagine there's always a temptation to get a bit too clever. There's always a temptation that it, it's all going to be too complex because you know, the old cliche is, you know, to finish first, first you had to finish. Was one of your, uh, you know, the planks of your engineering, um, reliability, a degree of simplicity, 
strong engineering rather than too many tricks? Well, as you said right at the beginning, we did have a lot of tricks in 1993, uh, many of which we could either run or not run. I mean, the car 93 was dedicated to active ride. It would have been a really big job to uh, convert that car back to passive suspension. But uh, a lot of the other systems on the car we could either have on the car or take off. But um, I think I was always quite practical in that really uh, I very much realised that our job was to win races and championships, not to, not to demonstrate how clever we were. Um, so there was always the the factor of knowing that that was the job. I mean, you can remember I was a, a shareholder in the team with Frank um, and we depended upon being able to operate. Uh, we didn't have mega, mega sponsors. We had a number of individual sponsors and we couldn't run the team without those separate sponsors on there. So I was sort of very aware uh, that we needed to get the job done, uh, not show that we were clever dicks. So, uh, uh, so there was always a fairly practical approach to uh, what we decided to run. It seems to me there's a parallel there uh, with the drivers. Um, I'm thinking many years back of Alan Jones and only one year back of Nigel Mansell, who were both drivers who, to put it very simply, I mean, got on with it, didn't they? <laughs> you know, they... If there was a problem with the car, they would tend to drive around it. They were they were winners like you and Frank. I mean, you mentioned getting the job done, and Nigel um, was you know, it, it, despite the fact that some people used to not make fun of him, but certainly Nelson when he was in the car, he always used to try and unsettle Nigel, uh, but. That was because he was not frightened of Nigel. That's because he knew Nigel was very quick. Nigel, when he turned up at a test, you knew, and the mechanics all knew, everybody in the team knew, that the moment he flicked his visor down and went out the pits, he was on it. He was giving 100%. Nigel never gave less than 100%. So it, it made everybody, uh, not that they were lazy otherwise, but it made everybody be sharp and make sure that they they knew the car was having its neck wrung. And Jones was the same. I mean, you're going back a very long way there. I'm not sure I can even remember that far back. But uh, but Nigel was, a, I mean, I do remember the numbers. You, I mean, earlier on, you mentioned we won over 100 Grand Prix. I, I, not that I actually, if ever I spend too much time thinking back on my motor racing career, which goes back... I, I ended up at Williams at the end of 2011. So that's whatever it is, 12 years ago. Um, and in my marriage and young daughter now, if I ever look back over my shoulder too much, I soon get a ticking off from my my wife. I'm very much, I hope, in the here and now. But um, uh, we won 113 Grand Prix. I do remember that. And... Um, uh, 29 of them, I think, were won by Nigel. So the, by far the biggest number of any of, of any driver who drove for us. So he was a serious, serious player. And I maybe I think historically maybe doesn't isn't because he only won one world championship. 
probably isn't given the credit that that he's due. He was a serious, serious player, was Nigel. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As well as being, as well as being ultra-competitive, I, can I assume that he also... Uh, pretty much understood what was happening uh, to the car uh, because, as we said at the beginning, none of these uh, so-called great drivers are gonna, aren't going anywhere without a really good car. And that's not only up to the engineer, it's, up to the, it, it's, a, it's a relationship, isn't it, between the engineer and the driver? Was, so he must have been quite responsive to that, was he? Um, oh yeah, I mean Nigel, uh, you know he he certainly treated the engineers with respect, and uh, but it, but you, when he was his attitude was in order, Nigel did none of the testing of the active ride car. I won't try and mimic his Birmingham accent, but his uh, approach was you know let the new young boys test the car because he had been in that position with Lotus and he'd been dropped on his bottom sliding along on the underside of the car with a hydraulic leak with Lotus um, many times. He did not want to go through that again. But when he could see that the active ride was faster than the uh, uh, standard car, he, you know, he buried that view. Also, he could see that it had become reliable um, he committed to it 100%. That kind of brings us on to Damon Hill. Um, different personality, a totally different character. Um, what, what did you make of, of Damon in, in 1993? Um, I, I'm assuming, like, like many of us, you probably didn't see him then as a future world champion. Uh, you tell me. Damon uh, was test driver on our active program through 1991 and also through 1992 when we were running Nigel and Ricardo Patrese. And because uh, Ricardo knew that we'd signed up Alain, he assumed that there was not going to be a place for him in the Williams team. So he signed up with Benetton uh, halfway through the year. And then, of course, Nigel got umbrage and went off to uh, to uh, Indianapolis or went off to do racing yeah. in America. Yeah. 
and um, <laughs> so all of a sudden we had a, a place. Uh, but Ricardo uh, was very honourable, if you like. I mean, Ricardo really wanted to change his mind and carry on with Williams, but he'd signed the contract with Benetton and he wasn't going to walk out of that. So we suddenly had a, a place vacant. And um, so, uh, and Damon had been testing the active car and was not only very good to deal with in terms of lap times, uh, it was very clear to us that Damon was, I mean, when we took him on as a test driver, we did not think of him as being a potential race driver, but suddenly we had a vacant seat and uh, the people who had been running the test team, uh, Paddy Lowe and various others, said, by the way, Damon's been doing lap times that are just as good at the when we go to the same circuits like Silverstone, are just as good as the current drivers. Um, and they promoted him a lot. Uh, I don't think Frank had the view at the time. I don't think Frank liked sort of moody, you know, he liked he liked uh, moody, sort of exotic, if I could say, whereas Damon was very straightforward and called a spade a spade. Um, and so it took a bit of time to persuade Frank that Damon was the type of driver that uh, we should have. But um, uh, once that thing was overcome, then uh, Damon fitted in very well. And as you could see, if you looked at results in 93, I think uh, Damon won two or three races in 93 and was very often sitting on Alain's tail in races. He was very much the equal in speed of Alain. So um, uh, was perfect driver for us, really. I guess Carlos Reutemann would... Uh encapsulate moody exotic anyway yes. yeah anyway. he was he was wonderful carlos very sad that he's passed away now but uh he was wonderful in the team but he was moody and exotic yeah donnington is one of those races that one regrets because a lot of the performance of the active car was um the fact that we could run it very, very low, literally with the underside of the car two or three millimetres above the, well, a little bit more than that, 10 millimetres above the ground, uh, eight to 10 millimetres. The problem was in many places, the water, the rain at Donington, the water was eight to 10 millimetres deep. So very often we were, we were speedboating along. And I think you'll, if you look at the data, you'll see that both drivers did something like seven or eight times in the pits. And that was because they thought that they'd got punctures or something, because every now and then the car would be sliding along like a boat. Um, and so they'd come into the pits thinking that there was something wrong. Uh, and we'd whack on some replacement tires until we ran out of wet tires. Uh, but we never, I don't know why, we, we somehow were not bright enough to be able to tell them to raise the ride height, which we could easily have done. So, uh, but it, 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 I don't want to take anything away from Ayrton's outstanding drive, but uh, I think we could very easily have competed uh, had we had the 
common sense to get the drivers to raise the ride height. It was it was just that our car was speed boating along on the top of the water. Yes, because actually they actually the uh, commentators always said they were aquaplaning, but actually they weren't aquaplaning. They were floating. They were actually floating, weren't they? They were speed boating. Yeah, they were. Yeah, 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 yeah. they were. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of water, Rob. Yes, yes, a lot yeah. of water. Um, okay, look. Um, at the moment, we're in 1993, but because we're because this podcast is supported by Scalextric, I want to take you back just briefly. Um, to your childhood, um, because me. that's too yes. long ago, too yes. long ago for me to remember. Yes, yes, but I'm not going to ask you any detailed questions. I just, I just wondered whether, as a boy, you had Scalextric or similar, and how early you got this sort of uh, the racing bug, as people call it. Uh, well, I didn't have Scalextric because I don't think at that time it was actually out there. It was Hornby Dublo trains and uh, yep. things, which I'm sure I must have had. Yep. Um, but uh, my father, who was an army officer, um, but after the war, he did a technical course at Shrivenham. And through the 50s and early 60s, he was mostly in civvies. I very seldom saw him in uniform. And he was uh, later on up in London. Uh, he was senior military advisor to a, a chap called Hazoli Zuckerman, who was the chief scientist of the government. So my father was the advisor on military affairs to him. So he was pretty senior. But at the same time, he motor raced and he raced mostly Jaguars, um, XK120s, C-types, uh, uh, D-types, which he never actually bought. He raced one of Duncan Hamilton's D-types through 1955, I think, and then 56 and 57, he raced a Cooper Jag, which I have to bring in here to say there were three Cooper Jaguars built, of which Bernie Eccleston owned one. Yes. When he was probably twenty or something, yes, yes. <laughs> he probably still does. I don't I'll tell you, I'll, Rob, so you can make your podcast a bit more amusing. And I don't know whether Bernie still remembers it. In some race, when Bernie in his Cooper Jag was slightly ahead of my father, my father kept tapping him on the back, uh, sort of saying, "Can you get out of my way, please?" And eventually Bernie spun off and my father went carried on in the race. And after the race, my mother told me this when this was well after my father had died, that my father was talking to somebody in the paddock. Uh, and my father wasn't very tall, but he was probably five foot 11 or something. And so a lot taller than Bernie. But my father smoked a pipe and he was talking to somebody in the paddock holding his pipe in one hand, and Bernie came up to remonstrate with him. And my father put his hand on Bernie's forehead, and apparently Bernie was underneath trying to hit my father while my father held Bernie off and carried on talking to the person as if Bernie just wasn't there. Now, whether Bernie remembers that or not and has held it against me, I really don't know. 
But um, anyway, apparently that was the story. These these are not the stories one often hears about Mr. Ecclestone, are they? Yeah, yeah well, he's a winner, isn't he? So uh, well, yes. uh, stories of Bernie that don't, um, where he doesn't come out uh, top uh, are not very many. This podcast is supported by Scalextric. Listeners can claim 10% of all Scalextric products by visiting www.scalextric.com and using the code RACE10. That's R-A-C-E in capital letters, followed by figure 10, RACE10, at checkout. This offer is valid until the 30th of September this year and cannot be used in conjunction with any other offer. A full list of terms and conditions is available on the Scalextric website. Did you and Frank uh, generally have a good relationship with Bernie Ecclestone uh, in Formula One? Um, because there were some, there were some, you know, we won't go into them all now, but there were some quite spectacular ups and downs, weren't there? It's not really carrying any particular resentment uh, because Bernie did very well for everybody who was involved in Formula One. I don't think uh, anybody could complain. But in effect, with Max's help, um, Bernie ended up owning Formula One without the uh, team owners, the Ken Tyrrells and whatever. I think Colin Chapman was very sharp in business, but this happened just after, in the years after Colin died. And I'm not saying the other people were not sharp, but they were sharp in running their teams, maybe not as sharp in the business sense. Um, but Bernie, in effect, with Max's help, took over ownership of Formula One without the approval of the other, you know, the Ken Tyrrells and um, the other team owners. And uh, I think they were not happy about it at all. But in effect, in what came out of it, uh, they all did perfectly well, so I don't think any of them could. Uh, sadly, most of them are gone now, but uh, they couldn't really hold it against uh, Bernie. But Bernie was certainly a sharp cookie, no doubt about that. He's a, he was also a race. He's also a racer as well, isn't he? I mean, he's not. Oh, yes. he's not a media company. No, well, um, now of course, sadly, uh, the people that own Formula One now are, are sort of criticising the way or have criticized the way uh, Bernie, but Bernie built it from nothing. I mean, really, before uh, when I joined Frank and we started Williams Grand Prix Engineering, Bernie had really not pulled, had not pulled Foker together and created that. So it was very much still uh, Frank Williams ringing up spa organizers and saying, I'd like to come to your race and how much money will you pay me? And they'd say, well, Mr. Williams, uh, we can't pay you any money, but if you'd like to turn up, then uh, we're very happy to give you space in our paddock. So, uh, uh, and Bernie changed all that. So uh, the interesting one was Ferrari because they had huge strengths. Uh, but Bernie said, whatever you're getting to get them to join Foca, um, uh, whatever you're getting now, I will get you a lot more. And he held that, he held, you know, to it. So, uh, 
Ferrari were very happy to join to it. So we, everybody has to give credit to Bernie, but Formula One was not an activity in any way like it is now or even as it was 30 years ago. No. Um, was, was, it, was, it, uh, was it you who wanted to have the word engineering in the name of the team, by the way? Because, because Frank was, was by no means an engineer. He was an entrepreneur, wasn't he? Uh, were you, was that uh, your thinking there? I'm afraid it was, Rob. No, I, 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 I mean, I, I, I joined Frank when I was building a boat in the Surrey docks in the middle of 1975, and I ran out of money. I mean, completely. I hardly had enough money to buy the next meal. And, um, and that was when it was uh, Frank Williams racing. A week after I, I joined, without me knowing about it, it became Walter Wolf racing. Uh, Frank offered me £500 if I wanted to leave or to stay and work as number two under Harvey. And uh, I really was not quite ready. Although I had an engineering degree and, and uh, some engineering knowledge, I really wasn't ready to be the lead designer. So although the car was terrible, uh, it was a real learning year for me, 1976, I think, um, going through the year as Walter Rolf racing yeah. um, with a terrible car. And we always had a theory about what was wrong with it. And I'd be working away between races to try and put that right. And it never got any better. Uh, and by the end of the year, I'd worked out it was because it was a very narrow track car and the weight from the wheels was completely destroying the flow over the front and rear wings. So I'd worked out that it was essentially aerodynamic uh, rather than mechanical. It's incredible what, what came from such little acorns, isn't it? Um, can, can, I, can we just go back to 1993 for a moment? Because I, I wanted to ask you um, whether or not the negotiations that were going on with Ayrton Senna, did they become a, a distraction for the team that year, in your view? I would that that would have been happening between Frank and Ayrton, and uh, I didn't um, wasn't really involved. Frank did ask me around about around about Silverstone time to meet Ayrton in his hotel because I think he'd said to me that there was a possibility of that, and I think as soon as Alain Prost got wind of the fact that Ayrton was likely to be in the other car, uh, he said, that's it. You know, it, it, he loved his motor racing. And if, if that hadn't happened for 94, then probably Ayrton would have, well, Alan would have carried on. But mm. he, he'd had years um, at McLaren with um, Ayrton in the other car. And uh, it wasn't that he wasn't up to competing with Ayrton. He just found the whole environment of, competing with Ayrton in the other car, uh, unpleasant. And he'd, he'd won, was looking as if he was going to win his fourth championship by that time. He didn't need it that much. Mm. Um, very, very late that year, the, the FIA, um, they announced that driver aides were going to be banned. Um, as an engineer, 
How did you react to that? Was that frustrating or was it actually a good thing? Well, I think in truth it was a good thing, but I have to remember, I remember being extremely annoyed um, because Frank, I'm, I'm going to be a bit patronising because he was a lovely fellow, Frank, but what he knew about engineering could be written on the back of a postage stamp and still leave a bit of room to spare. And he went off to that meeting uh, where Max, uh, Max knew quite a lot about the engineering of a Formula One car. So at this meeting, they didn't ban continuously, but it, it said that the transmission had to have more than four precise individual gear ratios uh, which obviously a CVT uh, did not have, and and Frank also signed up to that because they were they were all of them together in a room, and and the attitude was built up by Max and Bernie was if you don't sign here tonight, that's the end of Formula One. There's going to be no more. You know the public hate it with all these. Uh, devices, the cars are going to be driven by computers. So there was massive scare tactics going on. It was probably good for Formula One. Not only would it have been massively challenging for the engineers, but it would have been very costly as well. So it was probably good for Formula One. But I remember being enormously angry with Frank and probably caused one of the very few uh, um, uh, anger exchanges between the two of us. Well, of course, as things turned out, the cars did become computers many years later. Could you tell us a little bit about CVT uh, transmission? Um, partly because I don't, I don't fully understand it myself, and partly because I'm sure some people listening don't either, or maybe they do. But um, how exactly, how exactly does it work and uh, bring extra uh, performance? Well, the extra performance maybe was questionable. Um, we never got as far. We, although we got as far as testing it on the track, we never got as far as uh, competitively testing it on the track. Um, the, if you remember, and pe people might laugh, but there was many, many years ago, DAF, uh, a Dutch company, produced a CVT, and it had a, people say, a rubber belt. It was a fibre belt fiber and a synthetic rubber but the losses were quite high because the belt was uh sort of laterally compressible but there was running between conical pulleys that would move in and out so the belt would move up and down a, a running radius around these pulleys um but coming way back um i think in the 1920s uh 200 Austin 7s were sold with uh, a similar transmission under the name Hayes. Um, and uh, I, I think they had to withdraw them after a bit because I don't think they were terribly reliable. But they had uh, a metal belt. Um, and it's too complex to a thing, but it was a tension sheaves, very thin sheaves of metal uh, with blocks of steel around the outside, and the blocks were continuous. So the drive was transferred in compression, 
by the blocks. So you didn't have any, or you didn't have anything like the amount of elasticity as you had with the DAF transmission. And this transmission was sort of picked up by a very nice guy, sadly dead now, called Forbes Perry, who actually, interestingly, I mean, he was quite old, but still very sharp when we were dealing with it. Um, he had a company called Purbury Engineering. So the transmission was under the name Purbury. And uh, he was a draftsman in the de Havilland Design Office on the Mosquito Bomber. That tells you uh, uh, that he was getting on. He was probably in his late 70s, maybe early 80s, but very sharp. And uh, we picked this up and we were running a rig for a long time, circulation rig, and we ran uh, a 93 car with um, an FW15 with the Purbury transmission in the back. I forget whether it was Jonathan. I think it was probably Damon that drove it. No, I think it was David Coulthard, actually. David Coulthard drove it. Uh, we didn't do an awful lot of running because, as that, sadly, Frank signed it away before we could, before we could uh, develop it. But um, uh, basically, the trans... I mean, a modern uh, transmission was is about... 96, 97% Formula One transmission, 97% uh, efficient. Uh, uh, the Purbury transmission would have been about 92, 93%. So the losses were higher, but the drive would have been continuous. But you've got to remember that about that time, barrel selection and selecting the next gear before you'd engage, disengage the gear before. So we got into continuous drive, even with step transmission and uh, uh, slightly complicated to explain how that worked. But uh, we didn't we didn't uh, drive with two gears at once very often. And uh, and that's basically what the transmissions are are now in Formula One. They they are continuous drive, even though they've got seven speeds in them or maybe eight. They are now. Um, so uh, they're, they're clever pieces of kit. But these things are now in road cars as well. Not quite done in the same way. So, uh, but they're they're clever. They're all the Formula One cars are clever pieces of kit. Yeah. Yes, they are. Of course, they are. Um, but finally, before you go, I, I I wanted to ask you that the way we see um, Formula One in twenty twenty three. Yes, yes. They, there's some very clever engineering and design there, but. It seems to me there's there's not much room for creativity. I mean, if you painted them all the same color, as people say, could you really tell the difference? Do, do you do you feel that you know, perhaps it's gone too far towards um, uh, simulations, um, computer-driven information? On the problem is, Rob, it's very difficult to turn the clock back. And even if you banned any computer-controlled devices on the car, um, you know, it, it still would be much more advanced than we were, were running 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that I... I mean, there's an awful lot of equipment sharing. I mean, even... Uh, now, I mean, Williams run not only the 
Mercedes engine, but they run the Mercedes transmission, and that almost forces your your rear suspension design as well. So there's an awful lot of sharing with the Aston Martin as well. That's running Mercedes, Mercedes transmission, in effect, Mercedes rear suspension. So there's an awful lot of uh, uh, sort of coordination up and down the pit lane. Um, uh, yes, for me, um, I, I think I was very lucky to be involved when I was, uh, but I have thought about it and to turn around and criticize 10 years after I was involved, you know, I'd much rather uh, get on with whatever it is in my new life. And if I spent too much time uh, looking back on before, my wife would come and give me a good kicking uh, and she'd be absolutely right. So I, I stay away from criticising uh, the here and now. So 1993 was possibly, arguably, it could be said to be the, the absolute best times for Williams in many ways, I think. If we could end on a happy, positive note. <laughs> would you say, would you agree or yes, not? Yes, yes, it was really. And... Uh, um, the, it's one of the things looking back now, we, we were working with BMW in the early 2000s and 2003, we should have won the championship for various reasons, which mm. I won't go into, didn't. Mm. And the people running the BMW Formula One team at that time had this funny idea that they could do it better themselves. And as I've said to the people involved, I think in their four or five years, they won one Grand Prix, whereas in our four or five years with BMW, we won 10. If we'd been able to work better together, we could have won many world championships together. But I'm afraid the ego of certain people involved caused them to think that they could do it better, which they couldn't. But we should have learned to work better together. But maybe the Germans and the Brits have always had a bit, of, a bit of trouble in the past working well together. But anyway, something I regret that we didn't uh, we didn't uh, solve that problem working working better together. But um, I wouldn't say. I mean, we won championships in '96 and '97, so it wasn't you know '93 was a was a was a high technically possibly, but in terms of results, you know, we it 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 didn't end then thank you very much for coming out of your happy place in retirement and giving us your time it's really great to hear from you great to see you and uh we've had some laughs along the way so that's great thank good. you very much. well thank that's you. good most important is the laughs oh yes yeah. yes all right bye rob thank you bye so our thanks to sir patrick head for giving us his time and thanks to scalextric for supporting this new series of Engineering the Greats podcasts. See you next time. Experience the thrill of the race with Scalextric, proud sponsors of the Motorsport Podcast.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 